Amen. As we take our seats, I would invite you to turn with me in God's Word uh, to the minor prophecy of Haggai. Haggai and the chapter 2, moving towards the end of the Old Testament, uh, the prophecy of Haggai and to the chapter 2. And we're going to read a short portion uh, from this chapter. Haggai chapter 2, and we're commencing at the first verse. Let us hear God's word together. In the seventh month, in the one and twentieth day of the month, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do ye see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts, according to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, So my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory." saith the Lord of hosts, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. Amen. We land there at verse 9. And may the Lord add his own blessing to this public reading from his own precious and infallible word. Amen. As we take our seats, I want to welcome back to our pulpit our brother, Mr. Jonathan Eccles. And as we have announced over uh, the past number of weeks, our brother is with us during his fourth year of study at the Whitfield College of the Bible. He's working with us uh, one day in the week, and he will preach at at least one of the services each month. And so we're glad to have our brother with us today, and may the Lord indeed bless him as he ministers God's word to us this morning. Thank you. Well, it is good to be here with you in Hillsborough once again and to your new fellowship uh, with you all. And again, uh, I thank you for your encouragement uh, and your prayers uh, for me uh, this morning. We'll open God's Word again at Haggai chapter 2. 
And with God's word open before us, we'll seek his face in prayer and pray for his blessing upon the preaching of the word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do come to Thee once again in our Savior's holy and precious name. Lord, we confess the feebleness of the flesh. Lord, we confess the weakness of even our own words. And Father, we pray that Thou would come now and fill us all with the Holy Spirit. Lord, in the preaching of the Word, and the reception of the Word. Heavenly Father, that Uh, The word would be simple and understandable to the people, that, Lord, it would be a word in season to each and every heart, and that, Lord, thy word would draw us closer to thee and make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, do grant help and grace now, and we pray that in all of these things the name of God will be uplifted and glorified in this house. We pray in the Savior's holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. Uh, The portion of Scripture that was read to you earlier uh, outlines another word coming um, from the Lord to the people through the prophet Haggai. And the Lord aims to instruct His people once again. Now, seven weeks before this, in Haggai chapter 1, the Lord sent Haggai into the midst of the people and the leaders in order to instruct them to rebuild the temple and to, uh, to rebuke them for their spiritual apathy and their coldness of heart, which was signified by the fact that the temple lay in ruin. And in chapter 1, uh, the Lord seeks to get them out of their apathy. He seeks to get them out of their coldness and to get them engaged in His work once again. Their priorities were wrong, and they were neglecting the work of God. And what did God want? God very simply wanted them uh, to put Him first in their lives once again. And the rebuke from the Lord worked. For in Haggai chapter 1 and the verses 12 and 14, we read that the people and the leaders were stirred up. There was an inner rising when the Word of God came. And perhaps you could even say that um, in them and among them, there was a reviving which gave them zeal for the work of God and love for the work once again. And now they feared the Lord, and they put the Lord first in their lives. And this is a very basic and brief summary of chapter 1, but now we come to Haggai chapter 2, and we read that the Lord speaks to the people once again. Now, this message comes four weeks after the building work of the temple had commenced. And why does it come? What does the Lord need to speak to them about? Well, it comes because the people were discouraged. And the Lord wants to offer them encouragement as they engage in His work once again. And brethren and sisters, isn't it quite often the case that when we engage in the work of God, we start out with the best intentions. We start out stirred in our hearts and full of zeal, but quickly we can become discouraged for whatever reason. It might be because of ourselves. It might be because of others. It might be because of something different. But this morning, I want you to consider with me the message that the Lord gives to these people in Haggai's day, these people who engaged in His work. 
And I want us all to be encouraged as we labor together for the Lord in his work, especially in this new season of winter work for the Lord in this church. I want us all to be encouraged and instructed. And it's with these thoughts in mind and this portion of Scripture that has been read to you in mind that I want you to consider this topic with me this morning of God's encouragement to his laborers. God's encouragement to his laborers. I want you to see firstly that it involved an exhortation. Look at Haggai chapter 2 and the verse 3. It says there, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Now what is happening here? Well, the people, as they are building the temple, they are looking back to the glory days, if you want to call them that, in the nation when they were under the leadership of Joshua. They were recalling the days of conquest and the days of the dedication of the first temple in the times of Solomon. And these were indeed the glory days for this nation. Because the temple would have been adorned with gold. It would have been a glorious sight. It would have been a wonder, a sight to behold. And it was in the midst of a nation which was a great power in the region at the time. A nation which was a major player. But now they are looking at their own circumstances and they are comparing them to the glory days. They are looking at the massive changes that have taken place. And the reality is that in comparison, their present situation was dull. Perhaps it was even depressing. The days that they were living in were not the glory days of Joshua. They were not the glory days of Solomon's temple. And those days appeared to be a distant memory. And the new temple that they were building, it would certainly be nothing compared to Solomon's temple in terms of splendor. The new temple would not be adorned with gold, but it was going to be adorned with cedar wood from Lebanon. And it would not be the centerpiece of a great and powerful nation. It would be the centerpiece of a little insignificant corner of the Persian Empire. And in the eyes of this empire, the temple would be nothing. It would be nothing more than a token to buy favor from the people by the Persian Emperor Cyrus. And the Lord, as we see in verse 2, he didn't visit these people and disagree with them. He didn't tell them, look, you're wrong about your present situation. I think the Lord really affirms to them by his words to them that you're not living in the days of Joshua. You're not living in the days of Solomon. The temple will not be a glorious structure as it was in those days. The nation is not a great power in this region as it was in those days. And brethren and sisters, this can be a reality for us as God's people sometimes. We look back to what we consider to be better times. Times when churches were packed to the rafters. Times when you could could hardly get people into the prayer meeting. Times when more souls were being saved. Times when the church had a greater say in society. It used to be when the church of Christ spoke and the people of God spoke that the society lessened. Society valued what we had to say and what the scriptures have to say. But now we are really just an afterthought, if even that. We used to live in times of God's presence and God's working 
in people's lives. And we can often yearn for those times again. And we lament that those days are no longer here. And as we labor in God's work and in God's house, and we seek to build the house again, we can often be discouraged. We can often think that the days of God's moving are gone. People aren't coming in. Souls aren't being saved. But the reality is, child of God, these are the days that we are living in. These are the days in which God has called us to serve him. And the people in our text, they had to face up to this reality. This is your day. This is the day that God has called you to. Now, God didn't disagree with the reality um, of their present situation. God didn't even rebuke them for their their discouragement. What did God seek to do? He sought to edify them. Look at Haggai chapter 2 and verse 4. It says there, Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Yosedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. What does the Lord tell them to do in the midst of their discouragement? He tells them to be strong. Those days are no longer here. And yes, it's sad. We live in a day of smaller things. But be strong. And being strong, it really relates to a state of the mind. And it denotes carrying out duties with passion and with diligence. So what is the Lord telling these people to do in the day of small things? In the day of discouragement, he's saying, be diligent. Don't lose your passion. Don't lose your love for my work. Be passionate and be diligent. Be strong and rebuild my temple. And not only does he tell them to be strong, but he tells them to work. Now, I read a commentary concerning this verse, and he suggests that that word work is in the plural. So what is the Lord telling them to do? He is saying, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the people. He's saying, leaders and people, you need to work together. You need to be strong and work together. This is not a one-man job. It's the responsibility of the entire nation to rebuild this temple and to see manifestations of my glory. And dear brother and sister in Christ, this is all that we can do. Yes, we can look back to days of old with fondness, with lament, but we ought not to float around in a pool of lament and do absolutely nothing. Because that's a waste of time. We ought to get on with the work of God. No matter what discouragements we face, we may never see souls saved. We may never see as many people coming in as we hope to see. But what does the Lord say? He says, be strong and work. Rebuild my temple. Whether or not we labor in days of dryness or in days of revival, we must work nonetheless. Because God still wants his name to be published abroad. He still wants his son to be preached He still wants his house to be frequented by his people for worship. God still wants his people working for him. What does 1 Corinthians 15 and 58 say? It says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, 
unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Just keep laboring for the Lord. Whether it's a small work that you do, whether it's a large work that you do, it might be in a little insignificant corner of the church, just like the nation of Israel was considered a little insignificant corner of the Persian Empire. But friends, it's a work for God nonetheless. And if it brings glory and honor to His name, then it's a worthwhile work that you are doing for Him. In the midst of discouragement, be strong and work. But God's encouragement to His laborers didn't just involve an exhortation. I want you to see secondly with me this morning that it involved a promise. Now, the Lord accompanied his exhortation with a promise. And commentators have suggested that the progress in terms of building the temple had been slow. And this would have been for two primary reasons. One would have been that the preparation work would have taken longer than expected. They would have had to spend a lot of time clearing rubble, which would have been a lengthy process without modern machinery. And not only that, but we read in verse 1 that they were in the seventh month. That would mean that festivals would have delayed the building work as well as Sabbath rest days. Now the first day of the seventh month would have been the Feast of Trumpets. Uh, the tenth day of the seventh month would have been the Day of Atonement. And then the fifteenth day would have been the Feast of Tabernacles. So here they were engaged in God's work for four weeks, they were rebuilding the temple, they saw little work done, and they were discouraged. And this is often our experience in the work of God. We don't see the progress that we desire. Even in our Christian lives, as we seek to live for God, as we seek to grow in grace, as we seek to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ, our growth can be hindered by sin, it can be hindered by circumstances. Sometimes we feel like we take uh, two steps forward and then we sin and we take uh, another three steps back if you want to put it like that. Sometimes we feel like we are always getting rid of spiritual rubble. And it can take so much time and we feel as if we're never going to make any progress. And this is how God's people in our passage felt. But God wants to encourage them and he wants to reassure them despite their slow progress. And he actually goes on to remind them that they had a lot more in common with the people in the past than they realized. Because this promise, it involved two things. It involved a reminder of his covenant with them. For the Lord verse firstly says to them in verse 4, I am with you. He says you are discouraged. Uh, you aren't making as much progress as you wanted in clearing the rubble and in rebuilding the temple. The progress hasn't been great, but I am with you. I was with my people in the glory days when the temple was a sight to behold and the nation was a powerhouse, but I am with you in this day also. And friends, that is true. God is with us in our labors. And it's just as well that he's with us. Because we can't do it on our own. We are weak and we are sinful. But thank God today for the promise. What does he say? He says, I am with you. And this is no new promise to the people of God because 
The Lord not only says in verse 4 that he is with them, but he goes on to say in verse 5, according to the word that I covenanted with you when ye come out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. And friends, here we have the basis for the Lord's presence with them. It is based on the word that he covenanted with them. You see, the roots of God's promise to be with this people, it lies deep in their history. God's presence in the midst of his covenant people was at the heart of the relationship that he established with them at Mount Sinai in the day of Moses. And this is what God covenanted with his people when he brought them out of Egypt, that he would always be with them, that he would be their God, and that they would be his people. Believer in Christ, it's no different for us in this day. Because by virtue of our union with Jesus Christ, we are assured of the presence of God with us. Our salvation in Christ guarantees God's presence with us as his people. And it's because he has been to the cross, he has shed his blood. He has died and he has purchased a full salvation for his people. And when I say a full salvation, I don't just mean the day that we get saved. I mean that God uh, uh, promises to be with us throughout our lives. And he promises to complete that work which he has begun in us. And he promises to bring us home to glory. And to conform us to the image of his Son. And therefore, believer in Christ, on that basis, it is impossible for God to forsake us as his people. He has bound himself, he has willingly bound himself to be our God. He has bound himself by covenant to be our God and that we should be his people. And friends, we don't believe in a cheap salvation. We don't believe in a cheap atonement. We don't believe that you can be saved one day or one week and not saved the next week. That's a cheap salvation. And that's an affront to the cross of Jesus Christ. We believe in a full salvation. We believe that when Christ died on the cross, he died for his people and he guaranteed not only their justification, but he guaranteed their sanctification and he guaranteed their glorification. Believer in Christ, this is how secure we are in him today. It is impossible for God to forsake his people. And as you labor for God in his work, remember that. When God says, I am with you, he means that he is with you. He is true to his word. If you're discouraged in the work of God, remember his promise. I am with you. And remember the basis of the promise. It is the work of Jesus Christ in his death, in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. That is the basis of God's presence with you in the work and with us as we labor for him. What did the Savior say in John 10 and the verses 28 to 30? He said, And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. 
My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. Believer, be encouraged by the promises of God. And not only could they be encouraged by the promise or the covenant promise of God, but they could also be encouraged by the nature of God because He is described several times in our portion of Scripture as the Lord of hosts. Now, in brief, this is a reference uh, to the might of God. And you could say that it really is a reference to the scope of His power and the scope of His authority. He is the Lord of armies. He is the Lord Almighty. He has all power in heaven. He has all power on earth at His disposal. He has the power of life and the power of death in His very hands. This is the God who in the twinkling of an eye could turn an entire nation to Himself. This is the God that we serve today. And not only does He say that He is with us, but He says that He is the Lord of hosts. He is the one of all power, with all power. So he's not just with us. He's not just our covenant God, but he is the all-powerful God of heaven. He is the Lord of hosts. And nothing's impossible with him. And that's why we should labor with confidence because of the promise and because of the nature of the one that we serve, the Lord of hosts, our covenant God. And not only did God's encouragement to his labors involve a promise, but I want you to see finally with me that it involved a consolation. Now we move to consider verses 6 to 9. And the Lord says in verse 6, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. Now the idea here. Uh, according uh, to some commentators, is that the shaking in verse 6 will impact the whole universe. Now, the way that that word shake is written in the original language is terminology which belongs in the arena of God waging holy war against the enemies of His people, with particular reference to the day of the Lord, the day which will impact the whole universe. Now, this promise, in my eyes, looks forward to the day when God would appear and transform this present world into the final heavenly state. Because in verse 7 we read that the desire of nations would come. And I would suggest that that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in Christ, God has already shaken the entire world order, you could say. He has brought salvation to the nations. But we look forward to a world shaking that is yet to come when God will bring all history uh, to its end in Jesus Christ and at the return of Christ. Now with Christ's first coming, God had manifested His glory. He had established His kingdom and He had given His people peace. But a day is coming, friends, when God's kingdom will be fully and finally established. And when his glory will fill the world and peace will reign forevermore. In simple terms, you could say that Jesus Christ is coming again. He is coming again. 
And in the midst of our discouragement, in the midst of our despair, in the midst of, in the midst of our efforts to clear spiritual rubble and to labor for the Lord in these dark days, what does God call us to do? He calls us to look forward to that day when Christ will come again. And this hope that we have, it really is a powerful antidote to our natural human inclination to despair. It is our human nature to automatically fear, to automatically despair during times of trouble or discouragement. But God asks us to do something which is against our human nature. He asks us to be encouraged and to have hope because Christ is coming again. Quite often, when that rubble that surrounds us in our personal lives, in our churches, it can be so overwhelming. Sometimes we think that we're never going to be able to live out this Christian life. Sometimes we think we're never going to be able to finish well. Sometimes we think we're never going to be as much like the Lord Jesus Christ as we hope to be. Yet, believer in Christ, this is not the end of the story. There is more yet to come. I suppose you could say in simple terms that for the people of God, there is a happy ending. And that's when Christ's people will all be transformed by Him and conformed to His image. We will be like Him. We strive to do it in this life and we ought to continue striving to do it in this life. But we will be like Him. Because He's going to come back and conform us to His image. What a wonderful prospect that is for us to look forward to as God's people. And Haggai says in verse 9, The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. These people were building a physical temple. And they longed for this temple to be glorious, as the temple of Solomon was. But I would suggest that the fulfillment of this prophecy is not to be found in any temple made with hands, but it is to be found in the true temple which Jesus Christ has built. Because Christ in his own humanity was all that the temple shadowed and foretold. Because it is in Christ that God has presenced himself with his people. It is in Christ that we have the presence of God with us. It is in Christ that we bring our prayers and our offerings to God. For what does 1 Timothy 2 and 5 say? That he is the only mediator. And friends, it is in him. And it is in the spiritual temple that he has reared his church that I believe Haggai's prophecy will find its realization. It is in the new Jerusalem when all of his saints will be gathered, clothed in his perfect righteousness, enjoying the fullness of their salvation, that the glory of this latter temple will be realized. But Christian... Regardless of how you interpret that, we are guaranteed a glorious future nonetheless. 
As we labor in the work of God, let us remember our glorious future. We don't live as those without hope. We are in Christ. He will come again. He will one day complete that work which He has begun in us. He will reward you for your labors. Even in the day of small things, if you see nothing done, He will reward you for your faithfulness. He is building His church. He is gathering in His chosen ones. And what a blessing, brethren and sisters in Christ, that He has graciously ordained that we, His people, play a part in the building of this glorious spiritual structure. Therefore, remember the glorious future that we have in Christ. Keep toiling in His work. Keep serving Him. Your labor is not in vain. God will see to that. I finish with some words from Revelation 21 in the verses 2 to 4. It says there, And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain. For the former things are passed away. Now, that's what we have in view. That day, when he will come, and our labors will be over. Friends, I think this is the ultimate encouragement that we have in the work of God, that Christ is coming again. And he will put everything right. He will turn this upside-down world, downside up. And he will deal with your enemies and the enemies of the church. And we will be with him forever. Believer, I trust that we will heed the Lord's encouragement to his people in Haggai's day and even apply these encouragements to ourselves as we labor for the Lord in the winter work. And may the Lord bless his word to all of our hearts for his glory. Amen. Amen.